This is the Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net and in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. We see this growing crisis everywhere. We pass the cardboard sign at the intersection asking for donations and wishing us God bless. We see the blue tarp and the shopping cart half hidden in the small grove of trees next to the freeway. We see him sleeping on the sidewalk over the grate. Although we know the crisis is growing, we don't even have a good idea of how big it is. Our statistics are so vague, I'm going to call them guesstimates. By one guesstimate, there are over half a million homeless nationwide. Los Angeles, for example, is believed to have over 40,000 homeless. That is a city the size of Campbell, California, the home of Apple Incorporated, homeless and living in the middle of LA. Experts think that about a third of the homeless suffer from mental illness. A third have drug or alcohol issues. There is crossover, so a sizable percentage suffer from both. In addition, other root causes of homelessness include being priced out of housing, being a victim of domestic violence, being unemployed, having a disability, having had a financial disaster such as a catastrophic illness, or just being poor and old. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leader's Advantage podcast series. This month, we're going to look at how courts respond to homelessness, and how should they be addressing this growing crisis. Next to the police, the courts are one of the first points of contact with the homeless. A court may actually operate a homeless court. If not, we find the homeless on landlord-tenant, criminal mental health, or even family court dockets. Our polarized society struggles with dramatically different perspectives on how to respond to homelessness. One perspective is that courts are in the best position to refer the homeless to get help, including housing assistance, employment counseling, food and clothing banks, public health clinics, mental health and drug counseling, as well as access to justice. A countervailing perspective is that courts are not a social service agency. If a homeless individual is before the court, he or she is there because of a legal action, a crime, an eviction, a probate mental health issue. Courts should stay in their lane and just deal with the litigants' legal matters. Here to examine this issue are the Honorable Mary Logan, judge with the Municipal Court in Spokane, Washington, the Honorable Alicia Scoopin, Chief Magistrate with the Municipal Court in Chandler, Arizona, and Barbara Marcille, Trial Court Administrator for the Multnomah County Circuit Court in Portland, Oregon. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. When I was organizing this episode, several court administrators let me know how volatile this issue is. They implied that their courts were in fact divided over how to deal with homelessness in their city. Were there discussions in your court over how to deal with homelessness? And if so, what were the arguments? Judge Logan? Thank you. You know, the benefit that I have, frankly, in the municipal court is that we stood this court up on the premise of doing something different in our approach to the criminal legal system than had happened before, not just with the focus on those that are struggling with shelter, but just generally speaking. Over time, the state court, the state Supreme Court, has also let us know in uh, very certain terms 
about the importance of individualizing justice. So with that background, uh, we were able to develop approaches right from the beginning. And 2010 was the first time that, for example, I was able to participate in the International Community Court Convention, as it were, um, where I was exposed to amazing and um, innovative ideas on, on how to handle this. You know, and then bringing it back home again was, was how to really approach it. And there was pushback. Uh, there was pushback from prosecution who, you know, the definition of accountability, does accountability always register to be only jail? And so having to try to, to sort that out. So I would say that for my bench, which was brand new in 2009, um, I had the full support of attempting something different because we had all been involved in the criminal legal system prior to that and saw the true revolving door of somebody that would come in on a low-level nonviolent crime get booked into jail, get a credit for time served offer, and then be booted out the, the door with absolutely nothing done to change the course of their lives as to why they were actually engaged in the criminal legal system. So with that, I guess, a mature eyes as to doing something different, we didn't have a lot of pushback. Politically, there had been trying to convince mayors and administrators that this was the right approach to, to go. And we actually approached it from a fiscal sense and were able to win over even the most conservative members of our city council because they could see the distinction between the $130 to $200 a day that we would have to pay for our contractual jail um, contract with the county versus the approach that we were taking, which was really a money-saving uh, proposition for them. So it was a, was a slow education process. But at least as far as the court side was concerned, it wasn't much of a battle. Barbara Marcel? Um, I guess in our county, we, in our, our state as well, we see it as a more nuanced, uh, it's not really an either or question as to whether we want to be involved or see it as a, the right place for our court to be involved with people who are houseless. The reality is that in Portland, um, we have a large unhoused population and they are frequently in our court seeking assistance or facing criminal charges. And so we do need to interact with them. That said, the justice system, as you all know, is a system of rules and consequences for not following rules. And people who are houseless are often also challenged with mental health issues and substance use disorders that compound how they present and the complications of their life. And firm you know, rules and consequences are often uh, things that they're just really not able to comply with given their circumstances. And so I think we feel that our, our goal would be to keep more people who are in those situations out of the court system to address their needs in other ways. But finding ways to do that is, is really the billion dollar question right now, I believe. So how is your court addressing homelessness today? Judge Scoopin? Our court here in Chandler, we are very fortunate. We have had a nice partnership with various departments in our city. Our mayor and council have been uh, very supportive of the efforts that our neighborhood resources department has initiated with the court. We actually have a community court and we call it, I'm sorry, a support court, which is not the same as a homeless court. We consider it a support court because 
We offer the services that will support someone from transitioning to a um, indigent or transitional or homeless uh, state into a more permanent situation. And so by having a navigator assigned to each defendant that comes into our support court, the navigator helps keep that person accountable to get some basic documentation like a birth certificate and an ID card so they can start beginning to get assistance or resources through the state or federal resources. And then like uh, Barbara said and, and Judge Logan, there is an overlap between our homeless population and some mental health issues. And we find that if we are able to get them detoxed or into a state where we can do an assessment, sometimes they qualify for mental health assistance as well. So we're able to guide them in that direction where they can get additional resources and help. So the goal for our city with the police uh, department on board, with the city manager, mayor and council, neighborhood resources, the law department through the prosecutor's office is to reduce recidivism. The, ma the main crimes that are associated with this type of uh, population are really usually a direct result of being in a homeless situation, uh, urination in public, trespassing, disorderly conduct, sometimes paraphernalia, people are self-medicating. So when we can get them resources to avoid future contacts with police, it really is a win-win situation for our city and for the community because a lot of our resources won't have to be duplicated or reused on the individuals that are now progressing in a positive direction. But I think part of the, the success that we're having is getting all the stakeholders invested and on board in the program and arguing that it's a financial decision. It's fiscally responsible to do this because we are saving costs for the city and it's also, also saving resources and also a greater good for the community because we're seeing less recidivism in the community. Judge Logan? We do have community court. We have two now and they are problem-solving courts and, and akin to what Magistrate Scoopin was just mentioning. We have it not in the regular courthouse, which is one of the unique qualities. Uh, we have it at the Central Library in one of the courts, our mothership court, I would say. Um, and then we also have one in the community center. And that's by design as well, because we're trying to reduce the psychologic barrier into entering court, because normally, right, you go to court and what happens, your next step is usually jail. So in order to try to get buy-in from the population that we're serving, that we're really trying to approach this differently, that was very important to me. I was the, one of the initiators in the creation of the court. And the other is that instead of having resources buckshot across our city, and we have a robust resource provider base here in the city and county of Spokane, but even as we were standing up the court and we were you know, making contact with those agencies in an effort to, to bring them on board, we would get lost going there. You know, here's a bunch of highly educated individuals blindly making our way through a, three blocks from where we we're working, but not really knowing what building to enter. And all of us turning to each other and saying, can you imagine if we actually were struggling with mental health issues, how frustrating and scary this would be? So we invite them all to come down to the library that every service provider who is willing and they have their own separate room where there's instead of, you know, just getting a business card or a brochure about information, they are brought into the fold of that particular agency right from the get go. So everything just again, as Magistrate Scoopin had mentioned from identification all the way through into incorporating them into evaluation for treatment, be it mental health, be it co-occurring or be it just substance use disorder, all of those providers are available to us 
and it makes for a more efficient process. COVID had a very devastating effect, however, on our population and on our service providers and getting that reconnected has been a bit of a struggle, although we are gaining a lot of momentum in that regard um, by having the service providers showing up again. And, you know, those were just state mandates that required them to stay away. But with that and with this population, we're very accustomed to having these flash in the pan programs come and go. We have had to gain their trust back again uh, so that we can make the efforts that, that we need to see them through to at least getting on a housing list, because that's one of the biggest struggles that we have here is the um, entry into inexpensive housing. Barbara? Uh, sort of looking at a different aspect of it, given what we've talked about in terms of the combination of homelessness combined with mental illness and substance use, um, what we've really been struggling with is dealing with escalating behaviors in the courthouse. We have people, you know, who are coming in for assistance, but they're they're asking for assistance with things that the court cannot provide, or they are attempting to file documents that are not valid filings, our clerks really struggle with, and our judges as well, struggle with interacting and communicating in a way that um, the individuals are able to understand um, and giving them some next step that they can take if we can't help them. And so what we've really kind of focused on is how to better assist those people who are struggling and not accepting no for an answer and, uh, you know, have that end in a better way than calling the sheriff's office to intervene or that sort of thing. So we created a customer service analyst position who it's a floating person who has expertise in dealing with people who are in a mental health crisis or have other sorts of needs. And that person is called, you know, when there's a situation where somebody is presenting in a way that looks, um, is getting more acute, more escalated and, they really work individually then with that individual. They, they give them somebody directly in the courthouse to speak with. And sometimes it's uh, repeat visits with that individual, yeah. but trying to help direct them to other resources in a more sensitive, you know, kind way. We also have created a legal resource center where we have uh, facilitators and clerks who have expertise in de-escalating situations and also providing information about resources in the community, legal aid, those types of things. So we're sort of looking at situationally how to how to improve the interactions with people who are clearly in need, but they're, what they're seeking are not things that the court can really provide. Much of the public is frightened of the homeless. There are numerous stories of homeless individuals attacking people, although statistically the homeless are more likely to be victims than perpetrators. Should courts assertively discuss the realities of the homeless crisis with the public? Judge Logan? I think anytime you have the opportunity to educate the public about something that is a different approach is a good idea, and we make best efforts to do so. It is a very, very low rate of individuals that even come into the community court or our regular courts that have that kind of aggressive behavior. And the problem is, is that when it does happen, that's what gets the attention. And that's an unfortunate thing about the news, right? Just generally speaking, it's it's the sexy negative stories that, that get the attention as opposed to the stories that we often try to also tell, which are the anecdotes about our success stories. And so it's, it's presenting that on balance and also acknowledging that there is a 
For us, we have a fentanyl crisis. So people that are hopped up on fentanyl, actually they don't get hopped up. They just sort of fall asleep in their own laps. But then when they wake up again, there's, you know, can be very aggressive behavior or those that are on meth. And so I know that um, a treatment provider that has provided some really good balanced approach, which is today is just not the day for you. When you come back tomorrow, you know, we're hoping that you're going to be able to approach this differently and you can, you know, gain some more insights uh, from those resources. So in talking to the public about that, it's that's a difficult story to, to really tell. However, it is such the exception to the normal behavior that comes in. Usually it's a much more staid, quiet individual that's coming in. There, there isn't a lot of aggressive behavior, at least not in court. And I also know that a better face is placed on and when they walk in the door and, you know, I'm interacting with them than when they go out into the public because we have a great close working relationship with our law enforcement. And they say, yeah, they put on a show for you, Judge Logan, but when they come out here, they're kind of a lot more mouthy. And that's good information for me because if I know that, I will impart some words to, so that they are more peacefully uh, interacting when they get out in, into the world. But I, I think anytime we can talk about what the realities of our population are so that the public can stand down a little bit, it is helpful. The one-offs that happen, there's no denying it, and, and nor do I want to hide it, but it has to be a part of the full conversation, which is that there's an awful lot of people that really are grateful for the opportunity and to not just be treated like a number or a case or a file. That gratitude comes across all the time. And so it's a balanced approach in, in attempting to educate the public about that. Judge Scoopin? Yeah, this is an interesting question because as a court, I just feel very strongly that we should remain neutral and provide the facilities and the processes to adjudicate these cases. But we have such a nice partnership here in our city and our jurisdiction with our communications and public affairs uh, department, as well as our neighborhood resources, that they usually take the ball and run and do all of the, the education and the publicity. So our Neighborhood Resources Department Director, um, they have many events where they go out and um, make contact specifically with folks that are out on the streets, the regulars that they know and, and have had contact with, and share with them that there is uh, this a court that has a support court. If they have any criminal charges pending, let them know and they can get them connected with the resources. And then our communications department also puts out bulletins and information about the different uh, specialty courts that we're doing. Um, but as a court, I we don't take any proactive steps to educate the community. We are here to serve them and to provide the resources. We are very fortunate that our um, law department, through our prosecutors and our city prosecutor, are very uh, supportive of the work that we do here at the court. And they, without them, we wouldn't be able to accomplish um, half of the success stories that we have because they are flexible and willing to provide some incentives for folks to do X, Y, Z in order to have either their charges reduced or dismissed and that sort of thing. But um, as a court, we aren't doing some proactive efforts to educate, but we are very supportive of the other departments in our city that do take those actions. Mm -hmm. Homeless courts are one way that we respond to this crisis. However, one criticism has been that homeless courts are usually selective in who they admit. For example, one court's admission criteria includes no history of violence, and a solid commitment to return to being a contributing member of the community. Of course, this excludes some of the very people who are most entrenched in homelessness, and quite possibly the very ones the general public is most afraid of. We also know that unless one of these folks commits a violent felony, 
the criminal process, will likely jail them for a couple of weeks or months and then release them back into the community in sort of a revolving door. If we're going to comprehensively respond to homelessness, how do we address these entrenched individuals, the ones homeless courts often avoid? Barbara? Well, we've made significant pretrial reform in our county in, in the last few years, and especially in the area of holding people on low-level misdemeanor charges. If you're arrested on low-level misdemeanor charges currently, um, it's very unlikely that you would be held in jail unless there were really exceptional circumstances around that particular case or that individual. Um, it's more likely that you would be arrested and then released on recognizance. In addition, there have been changes in both the capacity for law enforcement and the policies of law enforcement. And so far fewer people are arrested on those low-level misdemeanor charges that we used to see frequently, the improper littering, urinating in public, basically, um, the trespass charges, interfering with public transportation, those types of low-level charges just aren't being enforced in the same way they previously were. At the same time, there are a lot of calls for accountability and change now. So this is definitely an evolving area in our jurisdiction. Judge Scoopin? Yeah, this is a great question. And I find that the same um, as Barbara, that a lot of the offenders that we see in our courts, uh, the limited jurisdiction courts, aren't those heavy, difficult cases. These are the, the lower level offenses that most folks aren't held in custody unless they tend to fail to appear or um, miss court often. Then we hold them very briefly. But we have in our police department, a new program that has been funded by our city where um, they're addressing more mental health issues that could also overlap with some of the homeless issues that we have in our city. And so instead of having an officer respond that may what would be normally a, a criminal likely offense, if they find during the uh, reporting process that this is an unlikely problem for the community, that it's an individual that may be suffering from a mental illness or some sort of other relate, issue related to homelessness, they'll send out a CARE 7 team, which is another uh, division of folks that are trained in social services to maybe talk with that person and find out what the issues are. And while they may or may not be cited, most often if there is an actual violation to cite, they will be cited, but they won't be arrested. They'll be cited and released at the, at the scene with a ticket to appear for court. And most of the people that we see in our court are the charges that have no victims, or if there is a victim, it's a business victim, like a shoplift case. But if there's a victim case, such as an assault charge or some sort of domestic violence issue, they're typically not eligible for our um, support court. But otherwise, I, I think that it's an issue with having to educate the public about, hey, these folks aren't going to go out and carjack you. They're not the ones that are going to go into your home and, and rob you at gunpoint. They're the ones that are going to go to Circle K and, and try to take a candy bar because they haven't had food for the day. So um, having people understand the level of crime that's being committed and that most of the crimes are, as, as I said before, either directly or indirectly because of their status, their living status. It appears that systemically managing the homeless crisis will take a lot of money. A lot of money creating a truly effective community mental health network, low-cost housing on a widespread basis, and extensive employment counseling are all going to be expensive. Do you think that the community has an appetite for this kind of expenditure? Judge Scoopin? You know, 
again, I'm fortunate in our city that we've been able to facilitate our support court without additional funding from the city. We have one public defender attorney that is shared with our other um, cases, and that a defense attorney is assigned to these cases for our support court. We haven't had to provide any additional money towards the court. And when they do get resources, it is a, a half-time uh, position, I believe, that the court had for the clerk to process the cases. And our uh, neighborhood resources department has the navigator. And that navigator not only serves our support court, but other areas in the city uh, for neighborhood resources. So we've actually been able to um, use the resources we already have in the city to establish the support court and provide this service for folks in this in, in the situation. But I can see on a greater scale, for instance, our neighbor city in Phoenix, they're having a large issue with um, a homeless population and an encampment coming up. And I know that the citizens, the residents are getting fairly frustrated. And it's a difficult problem to solve. I mean, without having some major funds put into the situation to provide some affordable housing or some transitional living situations, these folks are going to continue to come to our court system because of the nature of their circumstances of where they're living. And so I, there's no easy answer for this one. Judge Logan? It's uh, interesting uh, here in the city and county of Spokane because there's been a transition. Initially, and it was uh, this mayor's platform, this current mayor's platform, that she was going to cure homelessness. I mean, flat out said so. But the approach was a piecemeal approach, uh, and it really dealt with, uh, you know, funding a short-term shelter system in an effort to, and again, it was all short-term, nothing long-term in, in scope. We do have an encampment. It's called Camp Hope. Um, and frankly, the governor established a pockets of money, lots of money, in an effort to uh, help reintegrate the individuals that were members of that camp among many camps that exist throughout the state. But the problem that happened here was a sort of a battle about what was going to be the right approach to do that. The fortunate thing that has happened is that there are some very, frankly, benevolent in their time individuals, along with Empire Health, um, who has been sponsoring discussion after discussion about what could be a comprehensive approach to this. And the three and three individuals have then really taken the lead and they went and uh, visited efforts that were being made um, in San Diego and I believe in Dallas. And I think Dallas has the program that has the most remarkable results and has established that it could actually cost less money if you do indeed do it as a collaborative, cooperative effort with the resources that are there, as opposed to, you know, throwing thousands, hundreds of thousands in this direction, and then the same thing over in this direction. And yeah. because it really, the, the discussions that were happening with Empire Health was what, what really would be required with those resource providers, what could help in the progress of an individual as they're making their way through. Because frankly, in our court, we are dealing with the most complex individuals. We are dealing with the folks that are probably the most entrenched, as has been remarked here. And the city's appetite is cure them, which is doesn't really understand, uh, as I think, I, I don't know if it was Magistrate Scoopin or if it was Barbara, how uh, nuanced the problem really is for each individual. And so I have a lot of hope with the, these three. One was the chief financial officer for the city. Um, I have great respect for him. I've worked, I've worked with him in the past, and he was in that capacity for eight years. 
and then a city administrator also is a third or a second one of them. I don't remember who the third one is, but all of them really have in mind that what we need here is an umbrella under which all of at least locally here we could fall in an effort to to really wisely use money because yes otherwise you can you can burn a bunch of money and still not get to where you need to be so it, as i say it's just been an interesting progression and com our community board is a component of that but it isn't the, clearly not the be all and end all of of you know the answer of an inexpensive approach because when we first started we didn't cost the city a single dollar we stood it up just reallocating the resources that existed including the service providers but you know mm -hmm. you have to you have to support those service providers because that's the magic sauce um right yeah. in making any progress barbara if we're trying to reintegrate the homeless back into the community shouldn't we include recidivism as one of our trial court statistical performance measures Thanks for shooting this one my way, Peter. <laughs> um, well, let me start by saying that we do track recidivism as a measure for our treatment courts. Um, and so that isn't something that we're opposed to doing or that is foreign to us as a way of uh, evaluating successive programs. But our view is that we really shouldn't be looking at the courts for managing these cases, especially until there are appropriate resources available to be used. Mm -hmm. um, in our community here, it's a real dearth of resources that's the biggest problem. There are a lot of great ideas. There is a lot of commitment by the city of Portland, by Multnomah County, by many nonprofits who have expertise and innovative programs, but there is just not sufficient funding. So there's a lot of conversation about where that funding will come from. But there's also been a lot of talk about, I think I mentioned before, accountability and forcing people to participate and get treatment. And I think the real danger there is, you know, what consequences people would face for failing to complete whatever they're yeah. given as options. And so what we're really wanting to talk about is how can we provide better support systems and how can we keep people from entering our criminal justice system and really turning to the courts as solutions and we in and recidivism is a component of what we measure we had the benefit of having the washington state university study and produce results in 2019 which provided that we were reducing it in a better fashion than a traditional course, which is always the rub for me. Everyone wants to study the therapeutic courts, but what we have shown for decades, if not hundreds of years, is that the retribution model has gotten us where we're at, right? Mm -hmm. And so why aren't we studying that with a finer tooth comb? Why don't we have those expectations that there's a change in the dial, as it were, in the traditional system? And I mean, there has been there have been studies and the, the results have been that that doesn't work. And that's why we do have the therapeutic courts. I mean, it doesn't work for everyone, um, but that is why the, the branch off into the therapeutic court world. But but we do measure it and we've been able to show a, a distinction in the recidivism rate. So it isn't it isn't lost on us that that's what the public wants to hear, too. And it is our responsibility of the court. We take an oath to uphold public safety. So we must demonstrate that in our data.
Mm -hmm. I, yeah, and if I could just add one more thing there, um, thank you, Judge Logan, for explaining that. And I think that the the challenge for us, we we've had we had a community court type of program for about twenty years, but as that program evolved and resources became more and more insufficient to meet the need, and as the population of people who were homeless and uh, facing so many difficulties really compounded we found the biggest problem was the lack of engagement in the, the programs themselves. So the recidivism, you know, com successful completion, we were just having so few successful completions of the program that it just wasn't successful. So we ceased holding our community court. We're continuing discussions about how to introduce a new version of that that may be more successful and has more successful components of it. But the bottom line is, recidivism wasn't really the concern. It was getting people to be able to engage with the program and participate in, in services and having those available resources to offer them. Finally, what advice do you have for those tuning in to today's episode? Judge Logan? To listen with ears wide open. <laughs> um, and I, what I mean by that is, is understanding, as has been mentioned here at least twice, about the nuances that really are involved when you are attempting to assist someone who is struggling with shelter, because that just barely touches the surface of the person that is engaged. They could be, and we, this is, the complexity is as deep as veterans who are not engaging with the VA system for many, many, many reasons, um, but they engage in my community court instead. These are, you know, individuals that had many times had been honorably discharged and are now living on the street. So I use that as an example because it really stops people in their tracks that somebody that had been as highly trained as they are with as much um, information and services that had been provided to someone that participated in the military, how they could land on the street. Domestic violence victims are, are another great example. They end up out of their you know, lit normal living circumstances. So it's really trying to be, to take a step back from the emotion of just seeing somebody, you know, crumpled up on the sidewalk with a sign as you began this with, Peter. Um, it's, it's realizing that most of them don't want to be there. It's just very difficult for many of them to even fathom a different life. And so it is, it are these, it's these little bright spots that our community courts, our homeless courts, our service courts provide um, that gives them a little bit of glimmer of hope with those navigators, as Magistrate Scoopin had referred to, somebody there, angels that are there. So it's, it's really trying to at least take a breath before passing judgment. Judge Scoopin? Um, yes, thank you. I think that for any jurisdiction or, or community that's looking to address some of these issues, there has to really be an appetite for it, as one of your questions um, included earlier. The uh, political uh, folks that are in charge of your area do need to have some sort of um, investment in it. And then you've got to rally the troops. You need to um, have conversations with all of the stakeholders that would be involved in that type of um, commitment, so police, um, prosecutors, uh, maybe any victim organizations, uh, any neighborhood resources, community development programs in your area, the providers that um, provide the counseling, the services. And so having those ongoing conversations to see where the level of commitment can be before 
you make any uh, concrete actions. And then once you do take those concrete steps to start a, maybe a, a support court or a community court in your area, to know that it may not hit the ground running. There are going to be different iterations of it and it may not work as well as you would hope at the beginning. Um, but as you make those adjustments and uh, tweaks, then hopefully you can find the right um, tune in your uh, step to get that moving in the right direction. So it is a, a work in progress always, but it is a very worthwhile endeavor. We've found um, great satisfaction in seeing some of our folks graduate through the program, and it has been an overall win-win situation. So I can tell everybody that there is light at the end of the tunnel when there is a commitment made for, by most people in the area. Barbara? I guess I would just say, um, don't be afraid to to you know, don't shy away from being visionary and really look at you know a transformation of the system. I think we, as um, certainly as court administrators, from that perspective, are looking at process, and um, we sometimes get bogged down with what's possible, how the system currently works. And I think what we really need to be talking about in these conversations is you know really a, focusing on a human-centered approach, a, a really transformative way of looking at these. Uh, really desperate circumstances that people are in. So uh, there are no easy answers, no easy solutions. Obviously, uh, money is is necessary and there are differing views. But I think if we can really from the court's um, lens, look at where we want to be um, in the future, I, I think that'll help us get there. I want to thank Judge Mary Logan, Judge Alicia Scoopin, and Barbara Marcille for sharing their experiences and perspectives concerning the challenge of courts and the homeless in America today. The temperature on this question is rising. We'll have to wait to see if it indeed reaches a boiling point. As always, my thanks to you court professionals tuning in to today's episode. Whether a prominent attorney or a homeless person, I know you approach everyone with patience and professionalism. Thank you. Join us on Tuesday, March 21st, for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters 
They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.